Let's just continue in an attitude of prayer together. May there continue to be amongst us a meeting of minds, the mind of God as revealed in his word, meeting and instructing our minds as we listen to and consider that word. May there be a meeting of hearts. May our hearts beat as one with the great heart of Jesus, our Saviour. And may there be a meeting of spirits, as the Holy Spirit ministers to our spirit, reassuring us that we are children of God and that we are being led by that spirit. Amen. Can I ask you to pick up a Bible and return with me to Acts chapter 5. And we had read for us earlier the second half of that chapter, verse 17 to the end. That's chapter, Acts chapter 5 from verse 17 onwards and that's page 1097 in the uh, uh, church Bibles. Imagine what it must have been like to have been a Christian in the days of the Apostles. It would have been great, wouldn't it? To experience the Holy Spirit coming with Pentecostal power. To hear the Apostles preach and to witness their amazing miracles. To see 3,000 people turn to Jesus Christ in a single day. They were heady days indeed as the Christian message spread like wildfire, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, then onwards and outwards to the ends of the earth. It would have been great to have lived in those days, would it not? And yet before we look back with too much nostalgia, we mustn't forget that they were also highly dangerous times in which to be a Christian. The book of Acts records that as the apostles advanced with the gospel, success went hand in hand with hardship of many different kinds. There were not only great achievements, but also damaging setbacks. Not only wonderful encouragements, but also bitter disappointments. The early Christians suffered shipwreck, disease, imprisonment, flogging, beating, deception from within their own ranks and downright hostility from their many enemies. Some, such as Stephen and James, the brother of John, would soon be martyred. One stoned and the other beheaded. Indeed, of the original disciples, so far as we can tell, only one died peacefully in his own bed. It has always been risky to be a Christian, a real Christian, I mean. Satan doesn't bother if, uh, with half-hearted and nominal Christianity. But to be a real follower of Jesus in 
always has been in a Marxist or Islamic or Hindu society, often fraught with danger. And just in case you hadn't noticed, it's becoming distinctly uncomfortable to be a Christian in our own country. You may remember the case of Jenny Kane, suspended as a primary school receptionist after asking friends to pray for her when her five-year-old daughter was upbraided for talking about Jesus in school. Then there was Caroline Petrie, a nurse suspended for offering to pray for a patient. There was a foster mother who was struck off because one of her charges converted from Islam to Christianity. And then in recent weeks, we've heard about Dr. Richard Scott, who has been accused before the General Medical Council of crossing the line in discussing his own Christian faith with one of his patients. Whatever you make of these particular cases, one thing is clear. The atmosphere has changed even in this country. The new atheists are alleging that religion generally and Christianity included has an inevitable tendency towards violence. And they're also suggesting that for, for Christian parents to raise their children in their own Christian faith is a form of child abuse. The atmosphere is changing and it's becoming increasingly risky and difficult and challenging to be known as a Christian man or woman There's more hostility towards Christians. There is a greater risk attached. There's a higher price to pay. And so we need to ask, is it really worth it? Is it worth going all out for Christ and the gospel in the light of these risks and dangers that are involved? Now, it seems to me that our passage this evening, Acts chapter 5, and the second part of that chapter in particular, will prompt us not only to face up to this urgent question, is it really worth it, but also help us to come up with a decisive answer to that question. Let's quickly summarise the story together. The high priest and his associates, who are members of a Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, are furious at the apostles. And this isn't long after the day of Pentecost. They are jealous of the success and the popularity of the apostles with the crowds. And they are afraid that they themselves might end up being blamed for the death of Jesus. So they decide to throw the apostles into prison. Early the next morning, the Sanhedrin reconvenes and they call for the apostles to be brought from prison. Can you just imagine it? Send for the, for, send for the apostles. Send for the apostles. The guards are there, the doors are locked, the apostles are not inside the prison. Well, where are they? They're outside, standing in the clear light of day in the temple precincts, speaking once again about Jesus. The apostles are brought back in front of the high priest. We expressly forbade you to preach in the name of Jesus, they say. Peter steps forward and gives his famous reply. We must obey God rather than men. 
And then Peter goes on to do exactly what he's, he has been ordered not to do. He preaches in the name of Jesus. He just can't help it. They are so incensed that they want to kill Peter and the others there and then. But one of their number, a respected rabbi called Gamaliel, speaks up. If, he says, if what these men are doing is of human origin, then it will surely fail. But if it's of God, then it will succeed and it would be folly to resist it. Gamaliel's reasoning wins the day. The apostles are called back in, they're flogged, ordered once again not to speak in the name of Jesus, and released. And so the apostles left the Sanhedrin, chastened and humiliated, and they slunk back to their homes, determined never again to speak in the name of Jesus in public. Far too risky. Is that what they did? No. Look at verse 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The apostles then were perfectly willing to accept the risks involved in believing and behaving as befits followers of Jesus Christ. Even though believing in Jesus is a risky business, it brings you into conflict with people. The Sanhedrin, remember, was dominated by a group called the Sadducees. These men were the theological liberals of their day. They didn't believe in the existence of the invisible world, including angels. They denied the resurrection of the dead, and they held out no hope in, uh, for, uh, uh, for a future life. They didn't believe in any of that stuff. Altogether now, that's why they were sad, you see. And what is more, their minds were closed to all the evidence and arguments to the contrary. Their interrogation of the apostles, as recorded by Luke in verses 27 and following, in fact, is not an interrogation. It contains no questions whatsoever, no attempt to inquire into the apostles' motives and behavior. There is a hardness of heart and of mind here, which is palpable. I've already made up my mind. Please do not confuse me with the facts. Further evidence for this is found in their refusal even to speak the name of Jesus. This man, they refer to him as. Now, of course, some people have sincere and genuine objections to the Christian faith. And we must try to answer these with patience and sensitivity. But one really quite common reason people don't believe is because they don't want to believe. It may indeed be that they can see perfectly clearly that believing in Jesus as Saviour entails obeying him as Lord, and they're not prepared to accept that. Yeah, it's so difficult to believe 
because it's so difficult to obey. So then, if believing in Jesus can bring us into conflict, so also can obeying Jesus bring us into conflict. Obeying Jesus, then, is also a risky business. These apostles were, not, were hounded not only because of their beliefs, but also because of their behaviour. They were determined to obey God's authority, even if it meant being disobedient to human authority. Again, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Now that famous statement, I think, is worth pondering just for a moment together. Because to be sure, Christians are called to be good and obedient citizens, certainly generally uh, generally obedient to human authorities. Peter himself will go on to say in the first of his epistles, chapter 2 and verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. But Peter himself knew well that discipleship sometimes entails disobedience. When human commands come into direct conflict with God's commands, then it's our duty to disobey those human commands and to obey God's. And of course, the application of that principle may involve us in a great deal of heart searching. Here's a tree of difficult questions to maybe have a chat about uh, after the service. At what point, as a son or a daughter, would you be prepared to say to your parent, I must obey God rather than you? At what point as a student would you say to a teacher or lecturer, I must obey God rather than you? At what point as an employee would you be prepared to say to your boss, I must obey God rather than you? I guess we'll all have examples, and the answers are not always easy or straightforward. At least we can be clear here from this passage that the answer, the cut-off point, the line has to be to do with witness to Jesus and to the gospel. Christian belief and behaviour, then, is a risky business. But is the risk, then, really worth it? Well, yes it is, and let me give you three reasons why. Christian belief and behaviour, although risky, is worth it, because first of all, we have truth on our side. We have truth on our side. Now this is an outrageous claim. Many people today are sympathetic to vaguer notions such as faith and spirituality, And might be even interested if you talk about your personal subjective experience. But there is often great hostility and resentment towards doctrine, towards exclusive truth claims, to any fixed set of beliefs. But that's precisely what these apostles had. They had a clear and decisive message about Jesus. They were clear about Jesus his death, his resurrection, and the life that Jesus gives. In verses 30 to 32, we have a summary of the apostles' message. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's all about Jesus. We might well ask ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, whether our own thinking and speaking reflects this. Uh, Mark has been saying in recent months, certainly in my hearing, reminding us how we really must focus when opening our mouths about the Christian faith on Jesus. It's about him. Friends, we have not been uh, entrusted with a mere opinion, but with an announcement. Not a suggestion, but a command. Not an opportunity to turn over a new leaf, but an opportunity to begin a new life. The apostles were entrusted with speaking the full message of this new life. Verse 20. And so are we. So the risks involved in Christian discipleship then are worth taking firstly because we have truth on our side. But now secondly they're worth taking because supernatural help is available. You will recall that on this occasion, an angel of the Lord directly intervened and released the apostles from prison. To be sure, there's great and immense and profound mystery here. God, by an angel, delivers them from prison, but only to send them directly to a place where they're bound to be arrested again. And after that, they're given a severe beating, verse 40, and no angel appears to, do, to protect them from that. But the appearance of God's angel was enough to remind them that even if visits from angels are only occasional and unpredictable, yet God's presence with his people is assured and continual. We can go back and we can share then the the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that story from the book of Daniel? When they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not... We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your idols, but we will serve the one true and living God and him alone. That's Daniel chapter 3. So the risks involved in Christian discipleship are worth taking then because we have truth on our side, because supernatural help is available, and thirdly, because final victory is assured. Even Gamaliel was getting warm on this. He said that if this Jesus thing was of God, it was bound to be successful. What he failed to mention, or perhaps even to realise, that this only works when we take the long view. Christians must very frequently go through, at first, many dangers, toils and snares, as the old hymn goes. And yet it's always true that grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. 
God's purposes cannot and will not be thwarted. In closing, I'd like to remind you of the words of our Lord, some of the parting words of our Lord as recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the words of the Great Commission, when Jesus said to those disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age." Do you see how final victory is assured within that great commission? Final victory is assured because the one who commissions his disciples is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And final victory is assured also because as we go and make disciples of all nations, he is with us always to the very end of the age. I ask you this evening to consider the cost of discipleship, just as Jesus asked his first disciples to consider the cost of discipleship. Ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth standing up for our belief in Jesus and being obedient to his commands, even if this brings us into conflict and difficulty and rejection and suffering and hurt and pain, the answer has to be yes. Yes, because we do have truth on our side. Yes, because supernatural help is available. Yes, because final victory is assured. Let us pray. God of heaven and earth, Lord Jesus, one of us and yet divine saviour, Holy Spirit, life-giving power. May these powerful words that we have read in scripture about the risks and rewards of our Christian calling be real and true for each one of us tonight.